0: Too much because it then kind of you know puts extra strain on the old throat, and um, I usually fail miserably. Uh, Revelation songs, obviously, one of my favorites, and it's such a worshipful song. It's uh, it's really great. Uh, I'd like to go ahead and um, uh, dismiss the the children to uh, to children's church, and uh, and then we'll uh, we'll read the scripture and and get into. The sermon time so our reading this morning is ephesians 4 11 through 16 and he gave the apostles the prophets the evangelists the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of christ until we all attain to the unity of faith of the knowledge of the son of god to mature manhood to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint by which it is equipped and with each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Um, let's go ahead and, uh, and start with a word of prayer. Um, I'd like to pray for a few uh, people right this morning. Uh, Father, thank you for the opportunity to uh, share your word. Thank you that we can gather here and um and hear your word uh read and spoken and the opportunity to worship uh and sing praises to your name and glory to you Lord, this morning we pray for uh, uh steve krenz's friend anthony um with uh he choking on a piece of food and going into cardiac arrest and uh currently is is in a coma and we we ask for healing uh and restoration for him uh and uh Uh, comfort and peace for his family we pray for uh, Tim and Lisa who are away and uh, they're um, at the uh, memorial service for Lisa's uh, brother um, and this this unexpected uh, turn and uh, that you will uh, give both of them peace and comfort but also an opportunity to be a light uh, shining on you uh, with uh, meeting um, all the people and being with the family Thank you for our time, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. As I said, Tim and Lisa are in in New Mexico this week for the memorial service for Lisa's brother. Uh, Tim will be back in this pulpit next Sunday, but then they will be returning to New Mexico uh, the following week for Lisa's sister's memorial. So uh, please uh, keep uh, Lisa and Tim in your prayers for the next three weeks as they go through this time of uh, mourning and grieving, um, and, uh, and a lot of travel, too. It's, it's going to be really busy for them. So uh, I'm obviously preaching this morning. Uh, Joel will be preaching on uh, May 15th. And I asked him what he might be preaching on. Uh, like ladies showing up at a party in the same dress, you just don't want to be, you know, preaching the same thing uh, two weeks in a row. So when I asked Joel, he said, I'm going to preach on the Song of Psalms. Uh, That's the the romantic poetry of Solomon to his uh, young shepherdess. And I replied, "Ah, yes, you're newlywed. (laughs) I've been married 42 years. I'm doing lamentations. (laughs) So before you all go running down to Children's Church, Kathy knows I was telling that joke. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Don't get all excited. Um, the, uh, the subject of discipleship's been kind of in the conversation recently. Uh, a lot of people are talking about it. A lot, Some people have been talking to me about it, talking about discipling or accountability. And I thought I'd like to speak about it uh, this morning a little bit. Uh, I did teach on it uh, back in 2012, but when I mentioned it to Kathy, she didn't remember, so I figured it was safe to use the same notes. <laughs> the, um, the definition of a disciple is a person who is a pupil or an adherent of the doctrines of another or a follower, and, and I think in our world we so much you know, push being a leader, being out front, being leading edge and all that, that we kind of dismiss the idea of being a follower. In this case, being a follower is a good thing. Uh, So I chose uh, the Ephesians 4 passage as as kind of our central passage this morning. Uh, The first uh, verse, verse 11, And he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, And a lot of the sermons I've heard and a lot of the commentaries I read spend a lot of time on verse 11. They spend a lot of time defining each office mentioned here and how blessed it is to be in that office and to be that person and and all the work that went into them being that person and by my book. Um, They tell us how important it is. And with all due respect, I'd like to rephrase verse 11. My, this is the Dan paraphrase. Uh, I realize um, Paul was an inspired writer and was directed on how to write it, but i like to kind of tweak our perceptions a little bit. So my paraphrase is, God called some saints to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Let's just take verse 11, set it aside. We'll do it some other week. <sighs> because it's not the subject. The subject is the saints, and that those saints are being equipped for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. And that needs to be our central focus. The ones who are doing the work of ministry, and those of us in various people called it the gifted offices, the gifted officers, the leadership et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, we are there to equip the saints. We are there to equip you to do the work of the body of Christ. He goes on, until we attain to the unity of the faith. That's the first goal. That's the first goal in this list here, this subject, is that we all attain a unity of the faith, um that's that's our job as leadership is to equip you, the saints. And by the way, since I said saints equipping saints, that's also our job to um to attain unity. Uh, this is consistent with the expressed will of God, God several places. Um uh in Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, he says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Ephesians three, six, part of that unity was the bringing in of Gentiles as fellow heirs, members of the same body. The idea that we're to be joined in this unity and it takes some work for us to do that. By stating that this is a unity of faith, Paul doesn't command a structural or organizational unity. Sometimes we head off down that path when we start talking about unity and then bemoaning denominationalism. Um, we're, We're talking about a spiritual unity around a common faith. Paul doesn't tell us that the Presbyterian or the congregational or the Methodist model of church government is best. We set all that aside and go after a unity of our faith. One gospel, one Lord. And that's our goal in discipling, is that unity. And then it says, and the knowledge of the Son of God. That we have a knowledge of the Son of God. And that's not a trivia knowledge, not a, a facts and, and little tidbits but to, to know Christ as our, as our Savior. And when properly equipped, the saints, their maturity increases. We grow up in Christ. Um, and it says, of knowledge of the Spirit of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Saints, bringing saints to maturity, according to the measure of Jesus himself. So as the years pass, we should not only grow old in Jesus, but more mature in Jesus. We can't just simply grow old and say, yeah, I've I've been a Christian for 142 years. Um, you, You may have been a Christian for 142 years, but you're still a toddler. We need to grow in our maturity in Christ, both as individuals And is this corporate body, this body that is the church. When we we mature, when we disciple each other, not only do we individually grow, but then we grow as a church. Our church becomes stronger because it is more closely aligned to Christ. He goes on to say we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. It's been windy, like, for what, the last year and a half? I don't know. It seems like it, you know. Last night, my house started at the front. The wind blew, and the house creaked, and it creaked. You could hear, like, every joint through the house creaking in progression as it goes through the house. Uh, I was kind of afraid it was going to go over. But getting blown around by wind is kind of what we live with out here. But being blown around by winds of doctrine. Somebody comes up with a great new idea, and and people follow it because it's new and it's shiny, and we need to be careful of that. Understand that there's disciplers and there's deceivers, and the deceivers are effective because they target the immature who don't know the truth of the Word of God. The easiest way to deceive you is talk about something you don't know and tell you that I know better. That's what the deceiver targets, the immature believer. They lie in wait. They look for the target to deceive. And they're out there, and they're like landmines. But the mature Christian can recognize the disturbed ground, recognize that there is a problem in a a, uh, false doctrine. And uh, part of our job is to discern that, to declare that, and then disciple those who aren't ready to do that. Speaking the truth in love. Sometimes we turn this into a process. I'm going to talk about relationship processes, discipleship programs here in a minute. It's one of my favorite icky topics. Um, This speaks not only to how we relate to each other in God's family, but how the saints should deal with those deceivers. I mean, we just want to tar and feather them and drag them out of the church, right? Or I guess now just flame them on the internet or dox them or something. But we need to treat everyone with love, speaking truth in love. That's a sign of maturity. That's the mark of a discipler, speaking the truth but speaking that truth in love Uh, and grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. That's one of the ways we describe that maturity is that we grow up into Christ who is the head. This defines the direction of our maturity. We're to grow up and we're going to grow up. We never grow independent. We never grow away. We never grow to stand on our own. We're growing up into Jesus Christ our Lord. Second uh, Timothy one and two um, uh, says, um, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me from the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who are able to teach others also. What, what Paul says to Timothy, which you've heard from me in the presence of many ways, is what Paul has said to many witnesses, what Timothy has heard, he said, Entrust this to faithful men. Entrust this to those mature disciplers who can teach others. We are called to become disciples who make disciples. It's a never-ending process. Um, Used to be real uh, kind of popular um, was a pyramid scheme. And they always show mathematically a pyramid scheme just doesn't survive. Um, And this is the one pyramid scheme that works perfectly. We just disciple disciples, and it just goes on and on and on. And uh, God goes, math? Remember, I made math right. That the idea that we can, we have this huge pool of people that need to be discipled, and I'll talk later that we're in that pool too. So discipleship is who we are, not something we do. Um, there's there's always programs. There's always, you know, a six-week course or something like that. Uh, they, they call them shepherding programs. I've, I've been, I grew up in the church. And, and I've been in church leadership for unspecified number of decades. So I've seen a lot of these things. Um, so shepherding programs. I don't like being called a shepherd. Don't call me a shepherd. Shepherd implies that you... The sheep are a different class of creature than I am. Christ is a shepherd. I'm just a rather large sheep. I'm not fat. I've just got thick wool. <laughs> we, we are disciples who are discipling. We're not segregating into different classes. So... Um, when we talk about all those leaders in in verse 11 of Ephesians 4, firstly, they are saints themselves. So, so these, these programs tend to be top down um, organizational charts. Um, But we need to become disciples who disciple. We aren't better than the person who we disciple. And I want to stress that you're not better than the person you disciple because that dismisses the excuse that I'm not strong enough, mature enough, experienced enough to disciple others. Don't take that excuse that you're not qualified to be a discipler. I'm challenging you on that. Unless you're brand new in the faith, you should be discipling. If you don't like the term discipling, just go with partnering. You know, two two disciples working together, partnering together, works great. There's a lot of bad ideas about discipleship out there. Uh, Ed Stelter, uh, dean at Wheaton College, wrote about a few. I'd like to mention some of them, but wanted to give him credit for coming up with bad ideas. Um, No, he's pointing them out. It's okay. We try to program discipleship. We want to turn discipleship into a program. um, And discipleship is not a six-week course. It requires both the pursuit of knowledge and intentional action. Um, We can't offer a book or a class when what is needed is life. We want to hand somebody a, a pamphlet, a book, or something like that. Instead, what we, what we need is, is to be involved in their life. Uh, so there's a lot of programs out there. Some have good points, some have bad points. One of the things, I was in a men's accountability group at another church. That's where guys got together once a week uh, to be held accountable. Um, there were seven questions you asked. Most of them were forced confessions. Um, have I lied? Have I cheated? Have I stolen? Is that how we view discipleship? Forced confession. Um, a place to beat somebody up about their sin. And that didn't always happen. But the idea that I'm going to go and go to confession, (laughs) uh, to somebody else, um, I think has weaknesses as discipleship, as accountability, Uh, sure, and we can talk about that some other time, but the idea that if you hit me with a stick every time I tell you I sin, how long before I stop talking to you? Do I want to have that partner in relationship with you if it's this top-down you telling me your failures? It is important to meet sin, sin head-on. In a discipleship or accountability relationship, if you do it in an unloving way, we can turn that relationship sour very quickly. I've been handed lists of a dozen family and told these are who I'm discipling. What are they? They just handed me a list and says, you're a shepherd. These are the people you're discipling. And then I was told to fill out a contact list once a week and turn it in. You have to call all these people. (laughs) That was back in the days before cell phones. And you'd call someone you go, yes, answering machine. (laughs) I can check it off. I reached out and I didn't have to spend any time. Um, This idea that I'm just going to randomly divide up the church. has problems the other times it looked like an nfl draft with everyone getting a first round pick literally had one time they went around the room and says well just pick people off of our our phone list phone directory that you want to disciple by the time it got to me all three of my children had been picked by somebody else (laughs) um once almost half of my assigned lists were young single ladies at master's college certainly relatable to me right yeah. <laughs> middle-aged dad of three yeah <laughs> yeah it's not creepy at all that some guy calling the dorm hey is sharing there um <sighs> When Jesus made disciples, he brought them along as he ministered to people. He brought them along in the work. The good news is that research tell us people want this. People want to be involved in your life when you're discipling them. Recent study, they found a large majority of those who had previously attended a small group of some kind, but who were not attending now, would consider attending a new group but they want to meet with their group for more than just a once a week Bible study. To come in, sit down, have Bible study read to you and then leave isn't what they're looking for. They wanted relationship. They wanted interaction. They wanted discipleship. Sometimes we equate discipleship with religious knowledge. And we can't grow as followers of Christ without seeking more biblical knowledge. But many times we reduce the discipleship process to read this, study this, memorize this, go. Complete this course of study and now you are a discipler. Here's your certificate. Um, Once we tried a men's discipleship program where we gave each guy a list of almost 20 books to read then told them to write a summary, and they could do all the work without ever meeting with someone. And then you've completed the course; you're a disciple. Um, discipleship needs to be more like Jesus. Christlike transformation is the goal, as we are to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers Romans eight twenty nine The point is not information, but Christ-like transformation. It's not about knowledge in general, but it's about knowing Jesus better. How do you get to know Jesus better? Spend time with him. Spend time in his word, not looking for knowledge, but looking for Jesus. Meditate on his words. What does he say? What does he do? Um, When we disciple, we often don't offer practical steps. It just becomes this vague um, thing. There's no goal. There's no object. It's just discipleship. We need to be unapologetic that we want to encourage people. We want to be unapologetic in what we're calling them to. We want them to be grounded in their faith. Without faith, you're just hanging out. That they're consistent in the word. That they're in a small group with others. Don't, don't hive off your discipleship partner and keep them to yourself. Encourage you and them to be in the congregation with other people. Give people steps to take, to, and then be the person with whom they take those steps. Don't give them a list and say, call me when you're done. Say, let's go do this together. That's discipleship. Discipleship requires love. If you have no love for the church or her members, you can't disciple those within her. You don't have love for the body. You have no business being in the discipleship business. You're not discipling saints. You're, you're picking up customers. Uh, you can't disciple with without love because you don't care. Without love, you don't care what happens to your brother. You don't feel their pain or rejoice in their joy. You're not worshiping with them together. John 13, uh, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Loving one another is the mark of a disciple. Loving one another is how we define a discipling relationship. When Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, he said we should love each other as he loves us. And that's a tall order. That's a really tall order. Um, Loving God and loving each other then, though, becomes the defining trait of a disciple and becomes the defining trait of a disciple-maker. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about, I'm coming for the third time, and I don't want to be a burden. I seek what is not what is yours, but you. So his only concern for them was them. He wasn't there for the stuff. He wasn't there to enrich himself. He wasn't there to sell books, cassette tapes, He wanted what was best for them, even if it was at his expense. Even if he was the one who was putting out the effort. Paul loved them. Paul loved, and I've always been fascinated that Paul says these harsh things to the church at Corinth. And then he repeatedly says, wow, do I love you? Do you have any idea how much I love you? And all that comes out of that love. And he says, look, I'll, I'll be spent for you. That's what matters. Because discipleship without love is a burden. Discipleship without love is a burden, and you're not very good at it. You don't become good at discipleship if you don't love. And don't think people won't notice that you don't love. However, discipleship marked by love becomes a blessing to all those involved. And by the way, people will notice that too. People will notice that you love the body and that you have a burden for them. 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23, um, love for each other is the mark of a pure heart. That's how we show love. Galatians 6, 2 says, bear one another burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Love means we invest in the disciple. When we are discipling someone, we invest ourselves in them. We can't stand off. We can't do it on a phone call and hope to hit their answering machine. Discipleship requires a servant heart. Well, you probably figured out by now you're not doing it for the money. (laughs) This isn't even like a, a, a line on your resume. This isn't a title. This isn't a gifted office. This is life's work. This is what we are supposed to do. said in John 13, Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. You need to be willing to wash feet. It's true. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writes about what it's like to be be the Apostle Paul discipling believers five times i received the hands of the jews 40 lashes lest one three times i was beaten with rods once i was stoned three times i was shipwrecked A night and a day i was adrift at sea does that does that encourage you to be a disciple paul can only do that with the heart of one who's ready and desiring to serve it's just. Look, this happens. Set it aside. I want to disciple you. I I want to love you. I want to grow you in Christ. Um, Discipleship's family. We talk about family a lot. Discipleship is family. Romans 14 says, don't cause a brother to stumble. Um, And uh, kind of as Jonathan was talking this morning about good works, that it's It's easy to know the quota of things that we don't. Don't cause a brother to stumble. How many times are you allowed to let a brother stumble? None. <laughs> but um, If anyone does not obey what we say this second Thessalonians, Uh, take note of that person have nothing to do with them that he may be ashamed do not regard him as an enemy but warn him as a brother so if you're not causing a brother to stumble how much what's our quota of loving that brother is there a limit to how much we're supposed to love the brother is there a a point that we can say we loved our brother enough and we can move on i guess to stumbling i might guess but The idea that the negative things that we're not to do are absolute zero, but love and caring them and caring for them uh, is limitless. We should treat each other as a brother. In the New Testament, brethren, brother, sister is used about 250 times. You want what's best for your family. Those of us who have families, either parents or children, grandchildren, aunts, uncles, you want what's best for your family. We talk about it. I pray for my family every day. Enlarge that. Enlarge that to include your family here. Pray for the people here every day. Make this your family. That's how discipleship happens. That's how we be disciplers, is loving each other like family. You're not discipling some guy or gal, some person off of a list. You're helping a brother or sister to grow stronger. And that's where discipleship becomes real. Important point, discipleship is for you too. Talk about urging you to be a discipler and and all of that. Let someone else disciple you. You aren't only here to help others walk closer to God. That's not your primary job. God wants you to walk closer with him also. All those verses we quote to others about how God loves them was written to you too. Don't get so focused on discipling others, you have no time to be discipled. Don't get so focused on others that you push aside their love for you or Christ's love for you because you're too busy discipling. You're too busy working. Jesus didn't save you because he needed more workers. Jesus saved you because he loves you. And remember that and allow yourself to be discipled. Allow yourself to be loved by the family here at at Trinity. I know I don't like the shepherding title for disciple relationships, but what did Jesus say a shepherd should be willing to do for his sheep? John 10, 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So how far are you willing to go for a brother? In Acts twenty thirty one, Paul says he ceased neither night nor day to admonish the saints at Ephesus for three years. Night and day for three years straight. He did not cease. So... We need to allow ourselves to be discipled, but we also need to be committed and unceasing in our discipleship. So, how do you become a discipler? You're all asking. We have uh, there, there's three examples from the Bible I'd like to point out. First uh, Samuel chapter one, how Eli the priest did it. You can always wait till someone drops off their child and says they're fulfilling a promise to God. This is called the sit and wait strategy. Maybe not the best idea, but it's there. How Jesus did, it was the disciples. Uh, Matthew 4, John 1, Mark 1, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Call them out. Call them forward. Call them and they will follow you. This works. This actually works. Don't dismiss the technique Jesus used because he's God and you're not. I mean, he's our example in so many other ways. Walk up to somebody and say, I want the job. Because that's the other part of this. The, The implied... Contract here with Jesus and the disciples is what? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It comes with a promise of an enhancement, of something, of growth for you. So don't dismiss that. God lays someone on your heart, walk up to him and say, I want the job of discipling you. Let's do discipleship together. How Paul did it—bring them along in the work. In um, and, and Acts fifteen thirty-six, Paul says to Barnabas, "Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of God and see how they are." Having them work with you in ministry is a great way to disciple. Um, when I was little, like really little my dad started teaching me how to work on cars. I worked on cars with with my dad all the time. I I lived at home. I learned how to work on cars. No, I can't come by and change your oil this week. Um, But having them work with you in ministry is a great way to disciple. The other thing that happened was a lot of times my dad and I were in the garage and that's where I was discipled because my father was a man of God. That's where I learned from him how to be a man of God. Um, And as, as letters to Timothy and to Titus and even some of the churches, Paul mentions, you know this because you were with me when such and such happened. Bring somebody along in the work. Discipleship is not this box that we go and do. We live life bring them along and disciple and you're a disciple you're a discipler and you're an example and both of you live life in Christ which brings us to an important point be worth following be somebody who is worth someone wanting to be discipled by you I could have made that sentence better huh? The idea is, is are you worth following in a discipleship relationship? There's a big difference between having followers and being worth following. We see that on Twitter. We see that on Instagram. There's people who've got a million followers, but they're not worth following. They're not worth taking their advice, their counsel. Be worth following. As a discipler, we have to understand the importance of being a person worth following. And that fits really well with becoming a person that God desires us to become. See how neatly that worked together. It's almost like God had a plan to be a good discipler. You need to be the type of person God wants you to be. So maybe don't work on your qualifications to be a discipler, just be working on your relationship. With God, As disciples, we must be devoted to developing Christ-like character. That's in Romans 5. And that's the foundation for becoming a discipler who's worth following. Proverbs 4, 23-27. Uh, be upright in your words and deeds and keep guard on your heart. Be upright in your words and deeds. Be somebody worth following. In uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's perfect. Because you don't want to follow Dan's idea of Dan being awesome. That's going to be a train wreck for all of us. You want to be discipled by somebody who says, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm following him. Let's go together. If you are not worth following, this is not an excuse to not do it. This is not your get-out-of-jail-free card. You don't say, well, I'm not worth following. This is your call to be worth following. You don't think you're qualified to be a disciple? Okay, what's your first job? Be worth following. How do you be worth following? Follow Christ. Be a disciple, and then you can be a disciple. So, if you're worth following, teach what's worth following. Second Corinthians, or I'm sorry, Second Timothy 3 16 and 17. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There's that word equipping again. The idea that all scripture is where we go to learn how to be a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, but also a discipler. John 14, 6, Jesus says to him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We need to teach Jesus Christ. Nothing else leads to eternal life. Nothing else is worth discipling what's the value of what you're teaching uh when i was trained in electronics one of the things they taught this tells you how old i was um they taught me about vacuum tubes if you don't know what those are those are the little glass things that glow orange inside of really really old radios that makes things catch on fire um yeah, so you put these really, really hot little things that glow bright orange in a wood box. We thought that was a good idea. Uh, but I learned about vacuum tubes when I was training electronics. Is that anything worthwhile for me to teach you? Is that worth your time to learn vacuum tubes? What we teach to a discipleship partner needs to be worth their effort to learn it. What's the value of what you're teaching? In a discipleship relationship, in a family relationship, in a loving relationship, that has to be the word of God. 2 Thessalonians 2, 14 and 15. To this he called you through our gospel that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Do you want your discipleship partner to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ? Or learn vacuum tube theory? Which is more important? Teach what is worth teaching. Teach the word of God and disciple the saints. Let's close. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity to speak your word, uh, that we would love each other, disciple each other, care for each other, uh, bear each other's burdens and um, be more like your son.